What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebound and Safety. Today, we've got an amazing lady talking about a really challenging time in her life and how she'd reacted to it and learned from it to help others. Uh, it's a really harrowing story, but it's a powerful story and it's one that maybe many of us need to hear. Let's jump into the intro and tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplit. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit subscribe hit like hit follow blah 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 whatever positive looking button um, to help us on the algorithm finger majiggy today we are talking to an amazing lady with a powerful and, and pretty harrowing story um, which I think really helps to put context to the impact of stress and mental health in the workplace um, and also she finishes off by giving us some some tips and and um, and lessons that she'd learned essentially, and how she helps um, organisations as well. So, I really think this is going to be a powerful lesson for you, but I also think it's going to be really helpful. Um, I think this is probably a podcast that you might end up using bits of. So keep an eye out for clips and stuff that we might put out on YouTube for this. And I think this, if I'm thinking about how I might use this, it would be in some kind of stress awareness training or something like that, or a stress campaign or something. This is a powerful, powerful story. Um, so please listen. Um, I hope you enjoy it as much as you can, but ultimately I hope you get some some support out of it and some ideas or some inspiration and I hope it provides you some value. Before we get into it though, just a quick shout out to Paradigm Human Performance. Paradigm Human Performance are human organizational performance experts. They work around the world with some amazing brands doing some amazing work. They're a great team of people with experience in aviation, in the military, in rail, in nuclear, and so on and so forth. They're an amazing group of an amazing people doing some epic work. So if you're in a position where you're looking for some human and organizational performance experts to help you within your organization then paradigm is the place for you you need to go and check them out ultimately if you're not quite sure yet and you want to get to know them a little bit or maybe you just want to watch some webinars and stuff check out the learning organization webinar it runs every thursday every other thursday sorry um, and you can sign up to that on their website additionally you can get access to the backlog which is about two years worth of webinars so go and check that out as well all the details that you need in the description below thank you very much paradigm for sponsoring rebound and safety youtube and podcast channel don't forget to check out what we're doing uh, projectmeletium.com is the mastermind community for safety and risk professionals so if you're looking to improve your um, continual professional development and actually have some real impact on your professional development and not just tick boxes then 100% project meletium is the mastermind community for you we run weekly calls um, to help each other solve problems to to vent to learn to explore we run philosophy calls we run book clubs we run quarterly events there's loads of stuff that we do we've also got some online courses coming out imminently imminently it's taken us longer than we thought uh, to get that up and running uh, which will be free to members they're included to members and we're running the first month free of charge so go check out projectmeletium.com and finally, don't forget to check out rebrandingsafety.com, whether you're a brand trying to advertise to the safety risk industry or whether you're 
just a listener that needs some extra support from a consultant to take your next step in holistic mismanagement or culture improvement or even just technical safety, we have consultancy services that can help you at Risk Fluent. So go check out reboundingsafety.com. I'm pretty sure there is some way that we can help you. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with the amazing Asha Burzum. You good? Yep. Cool. Asha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into our discussion, you just want to give yourself a little introduction uh, to kind of what, who you are and what you do. And, uh, and, then, and then maybe we'll get into your story and have a good chat from there. Okay, cool. Uh, so my name is Asha Burzen and I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and I specialise in solution-focused hypnotherapy. Awesome. Just quickly, what is that? What is solution-focused hypnotherapy? Solution-focused hypnotherapy is where we use talking therapy. So that kind of traditional method of talking to somebody about their emotions and their actions, and then combining that using the power of hypnosis. The difference between what I do and what traditional counselling does is I don't have to look at the past. So the client doesn't have to tell me about, you know, what that traumatic experience might have been or they don't have to go over what the problems might have been, because actually what we know from more recent neuroscience is that that's not entirely helpful in some cases. And so it's very much about saying to the client, well, you're here today. And what are we going to do? What's the person that you want to become? And how are we going to support you to become that person? Yeah change am I going to support you to make what are those small little steps that you're going to take and then like I said we use that wonderful stuff called hypnosis to allow that subconscious brain to that subconscious mind I should say uh, to start thinking about putting it into play so it's very different when we get into the hypnosis stuff I, I I'm probably just so naive around it that it just sound, I feel like it's like therapy for Darren Brown like that kind <laughs> of yeah. yeah no you can just touch my forehead and I'm like yeah no none of that shit none of that shit is gonna happen no because and I think that's the misconception because it's stage hypnotism um and with stage hypnotism they're they're sort of subtly prepped before they go in um and there's a lot of effort that's put in to understand you know get a better feel for the audience oh bless you um and the other thing about that is, is if you think about it, the person that's introverted, the person that doesn't like making a prat of themselves, the person that's very uh, generally quite wealth, you know, comes to be quite reserved, they're not the person that's going to put their hand up. Yeah. You know, it's the person that kind of goes, yeah, 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 me, me, me. I, I want to know what this crack is about. You're not going to be able to hypnotize me. Yeah. But actually, by the time you've put your hand up subconsciously, you've already consented. Yeah. So you already kind of mentally prepped yourself to be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because from the moment you've said, yeah, I'll give it a go, your subconscious brain has heard, I'm giving it a go. Yeah, so be ready for anything kind of thing. Be ready for anything. Because it comes back to that thing, doesn't it, of, you know, when people say, don't think of a pink elephant. And mm-hmm. like, all you can think about is a pink elephant. And that just comes back to your brain has to visualise the thing before it can disregard it. Yeah. So when you say, I'll give it a go, you're not going to be able to do that to me. The brain has to visualise it happening before it can disregard it. Yeah. So. It's fascinating when you, well, I love, I love shit like that. Like it just, I love Darren Brown, if I'm honest, like I, I think he's amazing. And I think there's a lot we can learn from, 
from him and those practices and and like probably psychotherapy as we'll find out today but um i remember listening we were just talking about where i get my inspiration from uh with joe rogan i was listening to him on the joe rogan podcast and obviously joe rogan is a martial artist so does sorts of loads of stuff around martial arts and, and stuff like that and they ended up talking about self-defense and darren brown was um was talking about he was like people don't understand how powerful the words can be when you know how to use them to make someone's brain react in a different way so he was like I've, I, he said, oh, I've been in this situation before where this lad basically came over and was 100% going to mug me um, and come over classic, like, give me a wallet. And uh, Darren Brown just turned around and he said, you know what? I am sure that fence was six foot tall last time I saw it, but today it definitely looks seven foot tall. You know, the red one, the red one. And and the guy just kind of, what what fuck are you on about, mate? What, what are you on about? He's like, give me your wallet. And he was like, no, honestly, I'm telling now it was six foot tall. And he said the conviction and how you deliver it, your brain automatically goes red fence, six foot tall. What's he on about? And he said, the guy turned around and went, you're fucking crazy, mate. And just walked off. And I was like, that's genius. That is- and that completely makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you think about it in his head, he had gone over with an intention and that intention was to rob him, to take his wallet. And so he's gone over with this real conviction that that's what he's going to do. But then he's rocked up and he's by using just something completely random has broken his chain of thought yeah. because he's now visualizing, like you said, that red fence being seven foot tall, six foot tall or wherever the fuck it was. And he's just like, hey, what? Yeah. And, and that, that was enough for his brain to almost not potentially stop what he's doing, but also to give him that break. And that was enough for the brain to kind of go, oh shit, maybe this guy's not all there. Yeah, make you conscious in that moment. Yeah, Absolutely, because when you're in that space where you're so focused, you're not, you're conscious, of course you're conscious, but you're very focused yeah. in that conscious present, aren't you? Yeah. And so by doing that, he's kind of thrown him, mm. you know? So that's quite clever, actually. I quite like that. Yeah, I've, I'll never forget it. I love little stories like that. I'll never forget it. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, all the shows that he does as well, like, you know, I, I talk about it a lot in my work. Like, I'm like, has anyone of you watched Darren Brown? And most people are like, maybe a little bit. Or you get yeah. the or you get the, the big fan like me and they're like, yeah, yeah, love it. Um, and like, you know, think about that. Like when he makes a guy, he makes a guy push another guy off the roof. I don't know if you ever watched that one, but like, he literally manipulates this guy into pushing this 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 other gentleman or lady off the roof, and it is all just it's kind of what what we would call in safety or kind of resilience uh, engineering would be like kind of uh, normalized deviation. Really, it's like slight deviations from the rules. So he starts him off with just saying, you know, ah, oh, well, he starts him off by putting a person in authority. So and and then and then by putting the per, the doer the main the main protagonist I suppose putting them down so making yeah. them feel like so it was little things like they turned up he said oh yeah dress code is like is black tie but everyone else was casual or the other way around so he feels like underdressed or overdressed so he's already vulnerable and then put him in a position of authority put this other guy in a position of authority over me, the protagonist, and then being like, oh, try these these vegan sausage rolls. We shouldn't really, because they're for vegans, but try them. So he's like, no, no, it's all right. And he's like, no, I know we shouldn't, but try it, try it. 
And then, all right, fine. So he breaks one rule and then the next rule gets a bit bigger and the next rule gets a bit bigger. And the next thing you know, he's hiding a body and then he's killing someone. And you're just like, what the? It is nuts. The same at work. Yeah, and that's exactly it, isn't it? Because if you think about it, it's that boundaries, isn't it? You're constantly testing and pushing the boundary. And if you were to say, oh, go out and kill someone, you'd be like, what the fuck, dude? That's that's not me. That's not the shit. You know, that's not me. That's not what I do. But like you said, what you're doing is you're really incrementally shifting his boundaries all the time. And by just doing that, then it becomes that, that normalized, doesn't it? You know, oh, yeah. that's normal for me to do that, and actually, that's normal for me to eat those sausages when I probably shouldn't. And and it's actually, you know, that's a little bit outside my comfort zone, but now it's it's justified. Yeah, yeah. quotation marks. But you know, it's justified, and so that's exactly how it can work. And there's a lot of there's a lot of prep work that would have gone into that as well, because obviously, you know, it's a show, so there'll be a lot of hypnosis that's given him suggestions. Yeah, and they did like hand selected people. So they did this other where they did the behind the scenes about like how that not behind the scenes, but he said like how they'd prepped it is yeah. they how they selected people was really interesting. Absolutely. So they yeah. got them into this room with the interview process and they basically had a room of actors. Because I said, I said in theory, if you wanted to if you, if you had a massive budget and you were trying to get create behaviors within the workplace, you could do this. Um, so basically you go into a room and six people in the room, there's, there's seven chairs, six people of the chairs are full with people who are paid actors. Right. And the seventh chair is me. I walk into the room. I walk into the room. I'm not a paid actor. And then a bell rings and all the actors stand up. So I go, Oh, maybe I should stand up there. Stand up, yes. And then the bell rings and they sit down. And eventually they just keep going and gradually remove the actors. But whenever they got somebody, a candidate in the room that didn't follow the rules, they removed them immediately. They removed them from the equation because they didn't want a dissenter. They wanted they wanted people that conformed to society. Yes. So he kept people in the room that did that. By the end of the room, by the end of the, the exercise, he had no actors and seven chairs of people that stood up and sat down to the bell. And that bell went, yeah. That's exactly it, isn't it? Yeah, because if you think about it, we work, our brain works best when there's no change. And yeah. so when we see a change and it's like, oh, crikey, okay, everyone stood up. Okay, then that's what I need to do because we don't want to be different because from a – from a survival perspective, back in the day, if everybody was running away, say from a lion, we're not going to be standing around going, well, that lion's not real. We're going to follow the crowd, aren't we? And that's how we conform, you know, and they are the ones then who are going to be, I wouldn't say more susceptible, but they are the ones that you then have the ability to start pushing those boundaries, yeah. you know, and start doing that. That's what I am. Anyway, we didn't come in to talk about <laughs> You, you uh, uh, I sent us down a little rabbit hole there. So my apologies. But it's all up. It's all, I'm good. I'm all up for that. I love I love this shit like that. I could just chat about it all day. Right. Do you want to tell us um how you got into doing what you're doing now? Uh Asha, that'd be interesting. Do you want me to give you the whole story or do you want me to give you it in bits? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I wasn't 
I think let, let's start off with the whole, I mean, you probably thought I should have thought about this, but I think let's go in with the, you're going to tell the whole story. And if I decide to interrupt you and ask a question, I'm just going to do that anyway, because I'm okay, terribly cool. rude. <laughs> That's fine. I'm all good with that. Uh, so I worked for an organization for about 17 years um, and I went into the organisation straight out of uni. It was something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, I will say it was in the criminal justice field, but obviously because of everything else, I won't mention where and what it was and everything else. Um, So I worked in the criminal justice field and I I did that for about 17 years and I absolutely loved my job. There was like, I fucking loved it. I really believed in it. Um, I, I was really proud of it as well. You know, it really meant something to me. Um, and then I got an opportunity to take up a management post uh, back in sort of 2009. And I it was completely away from all my family and friends. And I decided that's what I was going to do. I wanted to change. So I left. So I left where I was living at the time in the Midlands and I, I moved down to the southeast, uh, took up this post. And like I said, I love my job. Uh, we were... So how do I put this? Uh, We were really successful at what we did. We were really good at what we did. Uh, We won a couple of awards um, and everything was was brilliant. And then I met my partner and he's lovely. He still is very lovely. Uh, And we, you know, bought a house, got married and all this, that, the other. And then we'd been trying to have a baby and weren't successful at it. And so we decided we were going to go down the IVF route. And... At the time, I had sort of spoken to my manager because I understood the policies enough to know that I was going to need to take time out and I was going to need to go get injections and have appointments and all this, that, the other. And I knew that there were policies around that, around, you know, maternity and and, and uh, treatment and stuff. So I told, told my manager and said, look, one of the things that came up was that they mentioned that it might be because one of the reasons why I might not be conceiving is because I might be potentially stressed. But to be fair, when they said that to me, I kind of laughed. I just kind of dismissed it. I went, don't be ridiculous. I love my job. People who love their job don't get stressed. Hmm. That was the sort of rationale in my head at the time. Um, And then, I mean, I was already managing quite a large team compared to most of my colleagues. So I was managing about 23 people at the time whereas my colleagues only had about 12 or 13 um and then about two weeks later of having this conversation and saying look you know I need to take it easy we're going to start IVF and obviously IVF's fucking expensive because I was over 36 so I had to pay for it privately um and he said yeah 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 sure 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 two weeks later he kind of then came into the office at four o'clock on a Friday and went yeah we're, we're kind of um one manager down are you okay to cover this particular team there are about 35 people are you okay to cover them for the next six weeks (laughs) I think it was the first time that I'd physically stopped put my pen down and looked at him and just went do you remember the fucking conversation we had two weeks ago (laughs) like and, and normally and I think this is for me where I know something in me changed because normally James I would I would be like oh yeah, sure. I can do that for you. Of course I can do that. Yes. I know my schedule's busy. Yes. I know I've got a lot on, but I can fit that in somewhere. But it was the first time I actually put my pen down and went, did you, do you remember the conversation we had about two weeks ago about what I'm about to start doing in a couple of weeks time from now? 
And he was like, yeah, 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 but it's only six weeks. And, you know, that's not a lot. And they're quite self-sufficient. You're not going to need to do much. Anyway, about four or five days later, uh, got up in the morning, going to get ready. And there was, I came downstairs and I was like, Craig, I got a bit of a headache. Uh, it was really bad migraine, actually. I'm probably under underplaying it. Came downstairs, got myself ready, took some, I took some tablets and went to the front door. And there was almost like there was a, a disconnect between my hand and my brain because my hand was on the door handle and I was like should we get out should we just open the door and get out now it's time to go but my brain was just like no we're not going we're just not fucking going we're not going um and so I thought well maybe I'll have a cup of tea make me feel better so I went and sat down for a couple of minutes so on that point your, your hand wasn't you would it mentally <laughs> open the door but your hand was just not moving yeah, in my brain, I was like, let's go. I'm going to miss the bus. It's time to go. Yeah. But my hand was just like, it was It was just, I was just holding it. Really? Wow. And it was probably for about 10 seconds. And then I thought, okay, maybe I'll just, I'll, do you know what? I'll take this morning off. I'll sleep, get rid of the migraine, and then I'll go into work this afternoon. Um, and that went on for about five days, four days, something like that. Uh, and then around the sort of fourth day, my husband said, look, you, you really need to go see the GP. You're, you're obviously not in a good place. Something's going on. I've been telling you for ages. I think you're stressed. And so he obviously picked up the cues and that happens a lot. Other people pick up the cues. You yourself don't see them. Um, and so I was just like, no, nah, there's nothing wrong. I'm not going to see the GP. And in the end, I went to see the GP. She said the same thing to me. Oh, I think you've got work related stress. And I just looked at her and went, no, nah, I'm not stressed. How can I be stressed? I love my job and I've got a great life and I go to the gym and, you know, I'm always going out and I'm socializing and I'm doing this. People who are stressed or people who are anxious, they don't do these things because they're not capable of doing these things. I do all of these things. There's nothing wrong with me. She just said, look, just take a week off, take two weeks off. Just going to sign you off. Just take some time out. Don't worry about anything. You know, it's Okay um so I conceded I went okay fine maybe I'll just take a bit of rest um and then two weeks later when I went back in I was a blubbering wreck crying my eyes out you know uh I couldn't I couldn't control myself in terms of the the feelings I was experiencing about the potential of going back into work um and and then I just said to her yeah I'm in a really bad place you know, um, and then it all sort of tumbled out of me, really. Once the sort of floodgates opened, you know, it then started to come out that I was probably going to bed at 11 o'clock, but then waking up at like one, two in the morning and getting up and writing service level agreements because I was thinking about, well, I've got no other time during the actual working day to fit that in and I'm awake now, so why not? So I was getting up, writing service level agreements at two, three in the morning and then going into work for six, half six, doing whatever I needed to do, staying there till seven. And I'd done that for about 18 months. I'd done that solidly. Um, I was waiting for 18 months, getting a few hours sleep. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And then I was waking up as well in the middle of the night thinking, did I do that piece of work? And, you know, given that I worked in the criminal justice field, the nature of the work is, can potentially be life or death. Mm. You know, um, so I'd be waking up in the middle of the night, having a massive panic attack that did I did I sign off that piece of work? Did I do that piece of thing that I needed to do that would um, 
that would protect somebody or that would, you know, prevent prevent any harm to someone. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, when the, when the doc- doctor signed me off, I went back to see her, everything came out. And then she signed me off for about sort of 12 weeks in the end. Nice. Um, and I was regularly seeing her. I was seeing her probably about every sort of two to three weeks. Um, and every sort of two to three weeks, I was just like, I'm not, I'm just not ready. I don't know why, but I just don't feel ready. Um, and so my employers at the time sort of said, look, you know, we've got an employment, uh, the Employers Assist Programme, the EAP scheme. So we're going to link you in with that and we're going to get you, get you seen by somebody. So I was like, okay, fine. So off I went uh, to do this. And the bit that I've not forgotten, but the bit that's really important is that at the time of being also signed off, um, we'd had a miscarriage. Um, And so... You know, it's almost that thing, isn't it? That that thing of when your work life if when your work life is hectic, you need your you need the calmness from your home life to sort of balance you out. And when your home life is hectic, you almost need your work life to be calm so that it balances you out. But that was the first time that both of those spheres were just chaotic. Mm. You know, um, and so when I went for the counselling, I was offered CBT because that's all they offered. And I did it and I refused to go back after the third session. Um, I found it really unhelpful for me. I I fully accept that for some people it can be helpful, but it was awful for me. It wasn't great. Um, And I rang my employer and just said, look, I'm I'm not going back. You know, this is the nature of the conversation I've had with this counsellor. And actually, it's been really distressing. Um, and I think the, one of the things for me was, was that I was strong enough within myself to understand that the miscarriage wasn't my fault. Uh, but the nature of these conversations were, they were, they were slightly suggestive of the fact that, well, because you're stressed, this is why you've had this miscarriage. And there was a sort of slight undertone in that sense. And, you know, I think when we, when we were having a conversation before, in my head, I was like, God, it's a good job that I understand myself that it's not my fault. But, you know, if anybody else was in that place where they were blaming themselves, they weren't feeling that strong and they were even more vulnerable than me, you know, that would have been absolutely devastating. Mm. You know, that would have really undermined what they were trying to do. And so I did go back eventually, but that was more because I thought I was ready. I thought I wanted to get back to work and you know be productive and all of those sorts of things rather than I was ready to be back at work um and I had a chat with the employers and my doctor put me on phase return went back on phase return and interestingly my workload was exactly the same as it was when I was working full time so I was like okay uh and they asked me to do something that I didn't agree with and so I decided not uh, when I spoke to the GP, the GP said that's ridiculous, um, and so she she agreed to sign me back off again, um, sign me back off again, and then we started this communication about going part time instead. And then when I did go back after about sort of five and a half months, six months in the end, I'd gone from this really um, busy, really purposeful really meaningful job for me 
went from this really meaningful job to then being in this part-time role where I didn't really have any responsibilities. Nobody really knew what I was doing. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I almost became like this extra body that was in this organization. Sorry, touched the microphone there. Uh, I became this extra body that was in the organization that um, was just picking up the slack, you know. Um, it it become kind of transactional in a way. Instead yeah, of being in- yeah, transactional in that I was just picking up stuff that other people could, couldn't do, but it just, there was no, I'd gone from having lots of goals, you know, lots of targets. This is what we're going to deliver. This is how it needs to be delivered. Planning it, scheduling it, speaking to staff about it, doing it. So then all of a sudden being in a situation where I was doing none of that. Yeah. You know, then it was just like I had this office, somebody would knock on my door and go, oh, can you please cover this for me? Or can you please do that for me? And it was really heartbreaking, Mm. you know, because like I said, I really and I still do really believe in the organisation and I love, you know, what they stand for and and what they're trying to achieve, you know. And so for me to have spent uh, sort of at that point sort of 16 years being so committed to it I felt like they kind of had just chewed me up and spat me out Mm. you know um and then I did fall naturally pregnant during that six month period as well um and just to clarify because I think that's really important point and I know we we you fell pregnant in the six month period that you were not at work right and that was the first time when everybody else had been saying to me, I was stressed, the doctor, my partner, my family, I was going, don't be ridiculous. I cannot be stressed because look at all these things I'm doing. And then when I had that downtime, I fell naturally pregnant. And it was the first time I really understood, hang on a minute, you know, there really is this connection between what I'm experiencing mentally and what's happening for me physically. And that was um, not through IVF. No, that was natural. So you'd gone X amount of months slash years thinking you just can't fall pregnant. There's something wrong between yourself or your husband or whatever, but something's not working there. So we're going to go IVF. But then you took six months off work and you naturally fell pregnant without IVF. Without IVF. And that for me was really powerful because that was the first time I then started to realise, you know, I've had these breakdowns, I've cried, you know, and I've questioned what am I doing, what this is about. But this is the first time I really understood how much my body had shut down, Mm. you know, because I I was a massive gym fanatic. I went to the gym sort of like four times a week, you know, meet my partner. We used to love going to the gym. So we used to make it like a, a couple's thing. We went to the gym, we used to go and chill in the sauna. We were always running about doing stuff, but it just never occurred to me that I really needed that downtime to switch off to let that adrenaline and cortisol drop and I was just constantly in that zone where it was just really normal um so yeah so then we found naturally pregnant and then I think I told you my little one decided he was going to come a little bit early substantially early um but before he arrived I decided to have some hypnotherapy because I was so petrified of of miscarrying again um that I wouldn't even tell people I was pregnant. I, I didn't tell anyone. I just went into baggy clothes and I was so scared that I didn't tell anybody. Um, 
And then I started hypnotherapy and that really helped me to kind of just get over it. And the week that I started to tell people, oh, by the way, I'm six and a half months pregnant, about to be seven months pregnant. And everybody was like, oh shit, you've got a bump. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, it's not because I'm a fat git. It's a baby. Um, But because I'd been wearing such loose clothes and then all of a sudden I'd rocked up one day in a dress that, you know, you could see the curve of the bump. Everybody's like, oh shit, you're pregnant. And I was like, yeah. And I'm like nearly seven months pregnant. And they were like, what what yeah and it literally was like that and that was the week I told everybody and that was the weekend I went into labor because that's just fucking sounds law um but the hypnotherapy all throughout really helped me because you know how we've just been talking about the whole Darren Brown thing about understanding the words that you're telling yourself understanding where you're focusing your energy Mm. you know and art for me I was focused on the fact that they've told me this baby is coming so the sweet FA I can do about it. So I need to do everything in my power, A, to hold on to it, him now, hold on to him for as long as I can. And B, when he does arrive, I'm not going to have fucking time to sit around wallowing. <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I'm either going to have to enjoy every moment because he, you know, we don't know if he's going to be staying. So I need to do everything I can to enjoy every moment. And at the same time, I need to do everything that I can to make sure he gets that best care and attention. Um, and, you know, I've really, um, I'm really thankful for the team. Um, am I allowed to say where he was born? Yeah. Okay. At the Royal Berkshire Hospital. Um, and um, it was the Buzzcock unit, which is the special care baby unit. And I'm, honestly, James, I cannot thank them enough for everything that they did. Not just for looking after him, but also looking after us, yeah. you know, um just you know because as you can imagine when so when my son was born I could measure him from here to here and he was about a kilo he was one kilo 55 at the time when he was born and I was so scared and when they when they dealt with him and, and did everything they needed to they said to us that you can come up after about three hours and see him and they let us they let me hold him uh, I, I was so scared because he was so fragile. Yeah. You know, he's like a broken doll. Yeah. You know, he was so fragile, really floppy, you know, and, and it was just like, a, it was really scary, but they let me put him on my chest, my bare chest. Oh, um, but yeah, so, I mean, kind of going off a little bit, but, you know. Just to clarify, your boy is with us now, isn't he? He is, he is. He's seven. He's amazing. He's probably one of the most gentlest and funniest souls that I've ever been blessed to know um so yeah he's an absolute gem he's a real star um and yeah so then I, I just decided you know what after he was born I had a real reality check and it was like oh, I don't need to go back there um and the thing that did it for me was all throughout when I was in hospital after he was born when I was you know in and out of the hospital looking after him because he, he had to stay in intensive care for three months um not once did a colleague or my line managers get in touch to check in on me. Not once, not even a, are you okay? Is there anything that we can do for you? We're just thinking about you. It must be really hard for you at the moment. And especially as they all knew we had no family and friends nearby, Mm. you know? Um, And, and so that was the time where I realized this organization just really doesn't give a shit. 
and and so it's time to go and so it was the fact that I'd had that hypnotherapy that it was like actually I can retrain in something that still allows me to help people to become who they want to be you know and live the life that they really want to live um, and so I retrained we moved up to the Midlands because we wanted to be closer to family um, and then I signed up with um, the school for hypnotherapy um, and I specifically chose that school because I'm very logical I like science yeah. and this particular school is very heavy on neuroscience um, and that's who I lecture for now as well so yeah full circle there we go yeah full circle Thank you. Firstly, thank you very much for telling us the story and um, and and honestly and openly as well, because I think it's a really powerful story, but also it, it's, a, it's a hard story to listen to. So it must be even harder to tell. So thank you very much for that. Um, I appreciate that. Um, and I think others will as well, particularly women, I think, that are going through similar, similar things, um, because, I, I, you know, we've we've had our first little and, and that alone. You know, it was a pretty simple birth. Uh, my, my wife might not say that, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it was quick. You know, she, Maggie was in and out in a few hours um, and it was it was fairly simple. But, you know, I just remember how stressed we were. And that was just a normal, the normal birth with with a normal job. And you know what's really interesting, James, is actually the number of, um, I think people, when people think of post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. they assume it's going to be war veterans or people on front line. Actually, the, the highest rate of post-traumatic stress disorder actually comes from childbirth. It doesn't surprise me. Um, yeah, completely. Because if you think about it, the person that you love is potentially, you know, giving birth. And then on top of that, you've got the baby that you've already got an attachment to as well. You know, um, it's kind of a bit of a soapbox for me um, because it is it is uber hard for a woman to give birth. Like the the it is just unbelievable, and my hat goes off to every female in the world that ever gives birth. It is just the pain that I saw in the face of my wife. I was just like, wow, this is the strongest thing I've ever seen anybody do, and I have the utmost respect for anyone that gives birth. But I do think that we we don't allow men to say how difficult it was for them. I think it's yeah. a really hard process for, for men. And I found it really difficult to see, to be completely helpless. Or, or my wife will say you weren't helpless because I, I was a punch bag basically and a squeeze ball, a squeeze, you know, body for her, um, like a stress ball basically. Um, but, you know, you feel utterly helpless and you, if you know, I'm assuming that, you know, you're in that room because you love that person and you're seeing the person that you love in excruciating pain and there's nothing you can do about it. And and really there's nothing the healthcare system can do about it. Like, yeah, you can have like drugs and stuff, but ultimately yeah, my wife was high as a kite. Like the stuff she was saying, she would never say again. She was asked, but I don't want to put you in the, or, or bless her, ruin her, her confidentiality. So we won't. <laughs> she was high AF. She was just like the stuff she was calling Maggie. At one point, at one point, they went, Have you got a name for her? And she went, Yeah, arsehole. Because <laughs> she was in so much pain. Oh my God, can you imagine looking at that on a birth certificate? So good. And, uh, oh, oh, Maggie, 
McPherson. Oh God, sorry. I was all McPherson. I think would be. Yeah. It's basically what people call me anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and I think that, like, I I talk to my wife about this quite a lot, and um, I mean, maybe one day I'll try and try and raise some awareness around it if I get some time. But it, it's. It's like I remember going to we'd, we'd had Maggie not for a few months and we go into like a summer barbecue and there was a lady of a certain generation, I'll say, um, that was like, oh, was, was it hard for you? Was it, James? Was it hard for you? And I, if she wasn't if she wasn't a friend of the family, I'd have turned around and gone, yeah, bitch, it fucking was. So do you want to lose yeah. the tone? Um, yeah. Like just because it's hard for me doesn't devalue how hard it is for Sherry. Like they're yeah. separate things. Yeah. Um, and and it's a I think I gen to your point I think it's a traumatic experience for both people going through it. Um, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, so I'm 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 sorry that you know you other oh, half I've forgotten her name. Um, Sherry, bless her, had a had a really tough time uh, during birth, and you know it it doesn't have to be painful, mm. um, which might kind of sound like what, <laughs> but actually. As humans, we that's how we're designed to give birth. And what's happened over the God knows how many years, but you know, over the last sort of 200 years or so, because it's become medicalized, the intervention that's taken place has meant that the way that we would naturally give birth, we haven't we haven't capitalized on it. So for example, when I had um, my son, when I had Michael, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to move, I had to stay on my back. Um, because every time, every time I moved, I, they would lose his heartbeat. Yeah. And obviously with everything that was going on, they needed to make sure they had his heartbeat. Now I've got, um, I fractured my coccyx many years ago. So as you can imagine, lying on my back for four days solid by about day two, I was crying because I was in so much pain. But for me, my brain understood I had to override the pain, deal with the pain and accept it because they needed to make sure he was okay and that's what I was going to do um but sort of going back to that point that you know there's a, a real thing isn't there that just because one person's um two people can be in the same room and have very different experiences and still come away with like you said you know uh, different types of trauma you know, from, from the event. Um, but, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm really sorry that Sherry had a, a, a tough birth um, because it didn't need to be. Yeah, she did. For, we did a lot of the uh, hypnobirthing stuff prior. Um, mm. Some some stuff worked and some stuff didn't. Uh, I think yeah. know, each to their own. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's really important because, you know, I know of people who have done hypnobirthing and they've had a fantastic experience. Um, and then equally, I've known of people that haven't had such a great experience with it as well um and and i guess that's that's like with any form of hypnobirthing isn't therapy but when you're doing that kind of intervention it's gonna it's gonna depend isn't it i don't i don't want to get too much into a conversation on this because it kind mm. of away from where we're going but i do think it partially become a bit too commercialized in my opinion like i looked at a lot of the stuff that sherry like so we were both doing this kind of course together through a very popular lady uh there's, there's like one lady who's like the biggest hip the birth lady. In yeah, the I know who you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, and, and do you know what? Fair enough. She met sort of money. She's good at her job and stuff, but I was kind of like what she tried to do through this course that, that we did. Um, it was kind of like an introduction to hip the birthing. Like I, I think it needed to come with a caveat to say, this is not enough for you to go and do it yourself. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. That was just my opinion. Like looking at it, 
basically what we're teaching, what they were teaching is, is similar to like mindfulness and Buddhism and stuff like that is, is kind of accepting the pain, dealing with the pain and, and breathing and, and just, you know, I remember that uh, from some mindfulness stuff I did, you know, they say, hello, fox. And even though you're the rabbit and the fox is a threat, you kind of, you say, oh, hello, and just accept that's what it is. And, and that takes years of training, like yeah. years of training. And we did a, you know, a few months of a course and I was just like, I thought it was a bit dangerous in my opinion, but you know what, Sherry, if it wasn't for the breathing, I think that we, we learned through that. Yeah. I think that really helped. I think that helped Sherry a lot through that. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to go into a hip. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely, because that's not what you need to talk about. But yeah. But what I did want to touch on uh, a couple of things uh, from your your kind of story, and and one thing that keeps coming up to me was the the importance of really building relationships with with your team. So like I, like you, I would kind of define your situation at work it's kind of like high function and stress and anxiety like you're still doing your job you're still smashing your goals you're still smashing your objectives and and i think traditionally managers have this not just managers i think generally everybody most people have this common misconception that stress is just if i'm stressed or anxious i'm i'm depressed in a corner and i'm just crying all the time i'm not functioning properly i can't go to work so i, I don't think the system is educated enough to pick up the fact that you were smashing all of those KPIs, but to the detriment of your own health. And yeah. I think the importance for me is is understanding that a manager and a and an and a, 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 an employee, the the relationship there is vital. And like I I talk at it from a from a point of view when I'm working with clients, I talk to it from a point of view of like, you know. Where's your unknowns? If you haven't got a good relationship with your employee, your employee now is an unknown. But if you have a good relationship, what's going on in that person's personal life now becomes a known and it, and you can now acknowledge whether it's a risk to your organisation or not. Absolutely. And, and I think from sorry, that, no, I was just going to say, sorry, like from that point of view, like how much of a difference do you think it would have made if you had that close personal relationship where we didn't do the thing that we do so much now, which is separate personal and professional, they're like they're two completely different worlds. No, 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 they're not. Like, do you think that would have made, particularly on your, your return to work, I think that would have made a massive difference. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think sort of, I think there's a couple of elements in that. The thing about the high functioning anxiety, completely agree. Yeah. Because the way the high functioning anxiety works is, is that you're a people pleaser. That's me. Uh, you're very conscientious. That's me. You're somebody that follows the rules. That's me. You're somebody that um, thrives on other people's praise. So your validation doesn't come necessarily from yourself. That comes from other people. That used to be me. Um, and so it's, it's one of those that when you're in that situation as a high functioning person, you will do everything that you can to maintain the status quo and say, actually, look at how good I am and what I'm capable of doing, because there's an element of that imposter syndrome in there, yeah. you know, and so th there can be that kind of correlation between the two. And I think the other thing for me is, which I'm not going to which I didn't think of at the time, but it came to me afterwards as I started to get better and start looking after myself was, you know, where the hell have I got this from? And actually it comes from the conditioning that I grew up with, yeah. you know, which is 
my parents always taught me you respect your elders you respect authority you know you you do everything that you're supposed to do that your manager asks because you are you be a good employee and so there was this kind of cultural conditioning and and I'm going to use cultural really loosely because family dynamics are very different in different families and you know so when I talk about culturally I mean my family culture you know um and the generation well caveat yeah absolutely it has to be in there the two generations above me um were people that worked on the markets so my dad my granddad you know they all worked on the markets but my uncles they all went to uni and my auntie went to uni in the 70s and so you know that was really unusual you know in the late 70s early 80s um and so there's that element of that conditioning so yes when you're high functioning unfortunately that also then means there's a lot of masking because you're not that person that's going to ask for help because you don't want to then be seen as a failure because you people please So not only are you taking on more work, but you're now pretending that everything is okay. You know, so it's very difficult, I think, potentially for line managers to be able to then see that. And I think that's where, as an organisation, it's about understanding what does this person's work stream look like versus how many hours they're physically trying to work, you know, because my line manager was signing off my timesheet every every month he could see I was coming in at six half six he could see I was staying till seven half seven so that in itself would have been enough to evoke a conversation yeah. what's happening yeah. here Asha what's what's this about you know turn this around but you know what's this about what why are you coming in so early and you know staying so late what's going on yeah. you know so I think yes there is that and yes I think absolutely you know when when I went back to work, there was almost a, um, in almost in a, in a negative way, actually, to my detriment, that it was like, well, we don't know if she's going to cope now. Yeah. So rather than having the conversation with me about what can we do to help you, it was kind of a, look, you know, we know you've had a really tough time. This is what we're going to do for you. And and, and there you go, because we want you to take it easy now. You know, and that kind of felt like a bit of a slap in the face. Mm. You know, um, because as you've, you know, as I've mentioned, if you're somebody who's been high functioning before, to then all of a sudden be in a space where you're not doing anything purposefully, it, it can feel really hard. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry. Look. Uh, no, just because my camera's going to die, so I need to change the battery. So okay, you- cool. Sorry. No, that's okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah, and just okay. so, normally we've got, we don't need to do that. But uh, I was on a call this morning with you, so that smashed that battery uh, as well. Right. I'm on a two-battery cycle. One gets charged, the other one's in the camera. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Well, you can buy, apparently, you can buy a battery that plugs in so you don't have to do that, which is my next investment. Uh, But anyway, yeah. It's slightly worth it. No, it's okay. So, yeah, so, you know, from an employer's perspective and an employee, line manager, you know, CEO, managing, and and actually, I want to also make that point that I was a line manager and it's not just about me and it's not just about the em- employees because employees are across all grades, you know, and so the CEO deserves as much care and as attention as the 
the kitchen porter or the admin staff, you know, whereas I think generally we tend to work on the basis that when we think of staff, we're thinking about operational staff. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think that can sometimes get a bit lost because that's how it felt for me that I was like, well, I'm a line manager and I have to be a certain way. You know, I have to take all this on and I have to be seen to be doing all these things. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, absolutely with with employers, they should be, you know, learning more about them and doing what they can to to support them. I think another thing as well that comes from from that is that the importance of like. I have this really annoying thing that I say every single day that people seem not to pick up on yet. Blanket approaches do not work. Like so, and and particularly when it comes to people. And honestly, if I sit in one more meeting where we're talking about mental health and the only solutions we've got are blanket approaches and they're let's get some mental health first aiders and I'm not devaluing mental health first aiders. I think they're very good things. And I think they're more organizations should have them. However, they are not the solution. They are first aid. So you wouldn't go, hey, you know, the HSC have just turned up and uh, we want to talk about safety at work. And you go, oh, yeah, cool. We've got some first aiders. You wouldn't do that for safety, would you? But that's what we're doing for mental health right now. But anyway. That's a really good analogy, actually. I really like that. It's the same thing. And it just, I, I, said it, I was in a meeting with a load of quite senior bodies um, in in the Nor- in Northern Ireland. And that was all they were talking about, mental first aid, mental health first aiders. And I said, look, if we if we turn, I said the exact same line, if we if we turned up a, a company and we're doing nothing for safety other than the first aid, what would you say? I said, well, you're in breach of the health and safety at work out. I said, yeah, so why are we only talking about mental health first aid now? We need to be talking about the systems, the environment that we're creating that is causing this stress. But anyway, um, I think I think all, to to kind of come to that point, I think it's really important and this is what I try to do with, with customers and clients is, is to take a people-centered approach. And people think that sounds really hippy-dippy and really hard and really chaotic because people are chaotic and messy and we're all different. But ultimately, it's, it's, it's just understanding that person. What's the risk to you? What are you? What's your personality like? So we can tell that Ash is a, pe- a people pleaser. We know she's going to hit all of those goals. So the stress indicators for Asher are going to be completely different from someone who's got different cultural background, different personality traits, and so on and so forth. Yeah. If we and just- I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important because this, this blanket approach is just ridiculous. You know, um, it, it's no different if somebody was to, you know, uh, fall over and we all go, oh, look, they've, they've, they've definitely broken their leg, but we've got no idea where they've broken it, how they've broken it and what's the best way to fix it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, we'll just stick a cast on because that's the best thing to do. Well, no, it's fucking not because actually it might need surgery because it's splintered and there's a risk that they, there's going to be an infection. You know, so it's it's about businesses starting to understand that number one a blanket approach is not going to work and yes that might mean that you need to change the way that you do things but all progress is built on change and we cannot continue with this approach of oh we have an eap scheme so sorry that's where you go and that's where you need to be seen and if it doesn't suit you well tough you'll have to pay for it privately you know, um, and, I, and I think I really um, I, I, I have to take a really deep breath sometimes when I go into business meetings and, and I kind of get, oh, well, we have an EAP scheme and that's what we're going to be offering. And it's like, 
and we have the mental health first aider because I have the same issue that you do because anecdotally yeah anecdotally actually the impact that they've had on in terms of preventing mental um compromised mental health is actually negligible it's very very minimal so for the amount of money that's been invested in this rolling out of mental health first aiders versus the outcomes the output the consequences the results marginal yeah yeah. absolutely marginal i think there's just there's such a great irony in it when you're like right what's our solution to stress at work oh we got an e, e you know a, employee assistance program and we've got mental health first aiders okay cool so why have you got them oh because if somebody gets stressed we want to give them help okay yep. cool. <laughs> are you acknowledging that you stress them out then is that what you're yep. saying you you are causing that stress yep. uh well no i just feel like we should do it so you should do it. So you're just doing it for compliance or are you doing it to reduce stress? Which one is it? And, and I, I could tie people in knots with stuff like this. And we come back to the point where we go, because ultimately what you're doing is you're doing what you think is right. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I respect that you've acknowledged that you need to do something. And I respect also that what you've done is just look at what everybody else is doing and gone. Let's do that. That's what we should do. And I also respect that I think a lot of people won't admit it, but they're really scared of dealing with this. I think they look at stress and they're like, and I, and I remember being there myself. I remember being on my first safety qualification and a very stuck up, naive young man um, and, and saying, I don't understand how we're going to we're going to deal with stress. I, I don't think it's fair to ask an organization to deal with stress. I remember saying that and I will never, ever forget the gentleman that was um who was a senior position for the police force in that area and turned around and said i have a we have a duty to manage this because he said i've got a, i've got one detective at the moment who's running a a child abuse case and the two children in this particular case that he is running are two twin young blonde girls and he has two twin young blonde girls so he has to be able to do that job and completely disconnect those two worlds and then go home and not be so stressed out and, and look at his daughters and be able to love them and not think of that. And he said, if, if you if you were to sit there and say it's not the, the organization's problem to deal with stress, he said, I would do nothing for that guy. And he would just go home and just what he would have nothing and I'm so grateful that I said that in that course and that that man was there because it was in that moment that I was like, okay, yeah, I get this. And we need to do something about this <laughs> because if I hadn't, I'd have gone years and years thinking that if he wasn't there, because the tutor didn't have much to say about it. And I, and I, and I think it goes back to that, uh, that point that you made earlier about, you know, we, we don't, we don't leave our personal lives at the door. Mm. And for some of us, when we come home, and especially with all this homeworking shit that's been going on, we don't leave work at work either. You know, we know that rates of burnout have gone up by something like uh, 221% yeah. over these last 18 months since sort of last March. Mm. You know, we know that rates of domestic abuse have gone up by 40%. We know that grooming of children online has gone up, you know. So we've got all these, these things that as as parents or carers or as, as single people that we're trying to manage at the same time while trying to remain effective at work yeah. you know 
And I, mean, I went to um, a networking event yesterday and there was a uh, an organisation and they were talking about mental health in the workplace. And uh, the, one of the ladies' questions was, and it just reminded me of what you were saying, was, well, you know, what's stopping an employer from dismissing somebody who's burnt out and stressed and getting new staff in? You know, why not just do that? You know, what, what's stopping them from doing that? And, and sort of, bless them, they were answering the question, but I don't think she necessarily got what they were trying to convey to her. So I said, look, if you don't mind, is it okay if I answer? I said, look, ultimately there is something that's in that work culture, the way that's been set, something set up, it's the work culture, it's the work stream, it's um, the way that they might work, it's the the policies that they might have in place, whatever it is, it sounds like there might need to be a complete overhaul in that situation, a, a, a proper person-centered assessment of what's going on. Because essentially all that's gonna happen is that person who's skilled and experienced will leave, yeah. okay? Never mind the human costs to them. We'll, we'll talk about those in a minute. But in addition to that, the new member of staff is going to come in. They're going to get skilled up. They're going to get experience. But all that's going to happen is that same level of stress is going to hit them at some point. Yeah. And what then is going to happen is they're going to leave again. And so we're going to get caught up in this vicious cycle. So that's why organizations absolutely have a duty of care to ensure that they are doing whatever they can to manage that stress. You know, and you know, we know, you know, you and I know that companies that do, I don't even, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't even call it the extra mile, but companies that treat us like humans, that treat their employees like humans, they are going to get that person staying with them longer because they're going to remember, you know, if you think about everything I just told you about what happened in my story, the thing that then made me realize I needed to leave was the fact that no fucker rang me text me checked in on me to see if I was okay or to see if my baby was still alive yeah. now that to this day all throughout that story I was fine right but that now is making me a angry and emotional but you know the rest of it I was okay telling you but that's what that's the difference they lost 17 years of experience all that training all that additional work they had put into me they lost it yeah. And, and, and I think it's such an interesting point because I think a lot of the time, and, and you know, I think we see symptoms of this as well on LinkedIn. Like how many times do you see the LinkedIn police come out and be like, uh, I don't, I don't want to see a post about your personal life, please. This is a business platform. And yeah. I'm like, dude, if you haven't worked out that they're one in the same, then you got a fucking long way to go. Because, you know, and, I, and I'm worried for the people that you employ, if you think it's that clear cut that I can just disconnect from home and come to work and focus because it doesn't work like that. And, and I think that you can see that on LinkedIn. And so therefore, you know, it still exists. But ultimately as well, like, I, I understand that I think some employ and, I, and I've helped organizations through this this exact problem people have personal issues that can infect the work in, impact the workplace that can be out of control of the workplace and i think that's important to acknowledge and and i think that you as an organizer how i would how i would kind of help a, an organization if i was doing that and i'd be interested on your thoughts is okay step one is let's look if we're contributing to the problem let's let's try and find out if we're making this worse because if we are, this poor guy or girl is, is really having a bad time, right? Two, 
well, it probably one actually, probably zero would be, do we even know about this stuff? Do we have the relationships with these people with our, with our employees to actually know for them to say, I'm having real problems at home and it's impacting my work? We might not even know that, but let's assume we do know that. How we contribute to into the problem would be, would be point one. Point two would be, okay, we, we're pretty comfortable with where we are. Let's, and, and within that process, I think we're talking to the person. We're trying to find out if we're making it worse. And it's important that we're doing it with them. That it's a collaborative approach, I think. And then I think the next point to say is how far are you willing to take this as an employer? Like I would, I would say to a customer, how far are you willing to take this? Because if this is a personal issue and it could impact your workplace, it's up to you. Like you can really make the decision right now. Am I going to invest in this person? Am I going to pay for, for therapy? Because they probably can't afford it. Am I going to try and help them with this to keep them? I think that's a better decision because I think ultimately that person is going to love you forever and they are going to stay with you forever. But ultimately, I also acknowledge that a company might not be financially or even economically stable enough to do something like that. But I don't know what your thoughts are around where you've got a personal issue that really is out of the control of the organization, how an organization should maybe deal with it. I've probably oversimplified it, but I'd be interested on your thoughts. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think that's a really important question, isn't it? And, you know, I was working with an organization where they had um, a young, they employed a, a lady and she had um, severe uh, history of trauma that was related to, to children and birth and stuff. And um, they asked, invited me in to do some sessions with her on a one-to-one -one basis because they'd had the conversation, very similar to what you described actually, you know, had the conversation and said, look, we're, we're, uh, we're a family firm and we we're very much that everybody that works for us is part of this family and that's what we do. We look after each other. Yeah. Um, and so when they invited me in to work with her, sort of like I think a year had passed of this sort of um, absence unexplained absence and what have you and what then became apparent was that she needed some support and so they specifically sought out what I did um, and I started seeing her and there was almost like a every sort of because I, I work in sort of blocks of appointments and so every time we'd come to the end of that block of appointment there was a conversation about you know where is she at obviously with her consent you know about confidentiality and stuff so checking in look where is she at that she's she's showing you you know this is what she's given me consent to share with you this is where we're at this is what we're doing and there was this kind of every time there was a kind of a we're not quite sure how far we can take it because of that, you know, we're, we're a small company. So there is that understanding, isn't there? And it, it must be really tough as well for employers from that perspective. And, you know, fair play to them. They went, I would say, above and beyond in that sense, supporting this person. Um, and one of the things I was having a conversation with them about frequently was, look, I can't guide you on this because I'm a therapist at the end of the day. You will need to be speaking to your health and safety person because of that understanding of psychological safety at work. Um, because one of the things that we talked about was the breathing exercise, allowing her to be able to take herself away so that she could go and do that breathing exercise. So she could work through that panic attack and then come back and continue with her work, which worked wonderful for her. And she was actually really grateful for that. And then at the same time saying that you need to speak to your health and safety person, but also you need to speak to your HR department. 
you know and that's the difficulty really because as as an employer they probably went I would say four times over than what they had planned to do you know they reviewed they did that plan of action with me four times in terms of what we were going to do how we were going to continue to move her forward and the, the difficulty is though James is that when you're in that place where you feel like your mental health is compromised or stretched the difficulty that's going to remain for businesses HR and health and safety is that everybody's journey I hate that word but everybody's journey to getting to a place where they feel better is going to be very different Mm. you know I've worked with another person who had a very similar situation and after four sessions she 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 was able to move move forward with the way that she wanted to move forward and I think that's the difficulty that that businesses are going to have um you know and it's really difficult to answer yeah like they don't yeah. do that. Is it going to take four sessions? You're going to take 400 sessions. And then yeah. once you're in it, so like you can say, you as an organization say, no, I really care about James. So I'm going to, I want him to stay. I think, you know, we really like him. We're a small company. We've got a close relationship and I want to look after him and we've got, we've got a bit of money. Um, so I want to help him out. But then what if that turns into 400 therapy sessions? And, and I suspect once you're in it and you've started helping him and you're seeing the development and, and James is improving, but ultimately you've, you've then got this pure guilt as an organization to be like, if I cut this now, it's all James has got. Yeah. And that's exactly where this organization were at because they were like, well, we were only working blocks of six. We were only looking for six. Okay. We, we think she might need 12. Okay. We'll do the 12. And then they did it four times over, you know, and they understand. And, and, and I was saying to them, look, you, you have to do what you think is right. Um, I can tell you from the conversations that we've had that, you know, she's recovering from a trauma and that might take a bit of time. I can't tell you how long that's going to take. Um, and that's where I think is is really difficult for businesses. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think there's a, a full answer. I think, I think also, and that's why I say HR are probably the people to best guide us because then we've also got the Disability and Discrimination Act as well because once you've been diagnosed with something, you know, then you're looking at the legislation around that as well, aren't you, ultimately? Um, it's it's an interesting relationship, I think. I think I think a lot of organisations are struggling to work out who deals with stress. Yes. And, and like one minute I'm involved, next minute HR's involved, one minute HR's running it, then I'm running it. it it's a, And I think a lot of safety professionals go through that same thing. Yeah. Ultimately, it's a risk to the organisation and and it's a it's an oper, I call it an operational risk. You know, the health of the employee is an operational risk. So therefore, I think it sits under safety. However, there are aspects of it. That, that we 100% need to collaborate with HR. Um, and, and, and there might be a HR person that listens to me say this and think, no, you're totally wrong. And that's fair enough. If they agree, please come on the podcast and we can talk about this. But ultimately I see HR, do I want to say this? I see HR as a, uh, primarily I <laughs> I'm trying to work out how to say this. I've backed myself into a corner now. Only in my experience with HR, I see them very much as a transactional process to protect the organization and the employee to a certain extent. But ultimately, I see 
the majority of HR departments, in my experience, exist for the employee, uh, sorry, the employer, not the employee. Whereas my experience of my profession, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people in my profession that focus solely on the compliance side, but I think safety is taking a shift to focus heavily on the employee than they are on the employer. Um, I might be completely wrong about that. And maybe there's a rebranding HR podcast out there somewhere. To, 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 to... I think you're in touch with some, some really good HR people, actually. Who, and it's really interesting because I find that with smaller businesses, their ethos is slightly different, especially with the newer established younger CEOs. There's a real kind of understanding around the importance of not feeling like oh it just sits here and it just sits there it's about understanding actually it sits with all of us us, you know here's the ceo the culture that i create and 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 i holistically holistically completely and you know there's a lot of um new businesses that i've been speaking to and seeing and and you can see that they're starting to understand that it's not just about, oh, it sits here and it sits there. There's not this kind of real kind of categorical boxing of people. It's very much about understanding, actually, we need to work collaboratively because we're going to support this person going forward. I Um, agree on that. And I wish you'd have said that before I started slagging off. (laughs) No, that's okay. Because because we have different, we, we do, don't we? And we have different businesses. We have those much more, older and established businesses who are the ones, as we said, tend to sort of kick back against recognising that stress happens in the workplace and people will bring their stress from outside into the home. But, you know, we are not, it's a completely different, it's going to be a potential Pandora's box, but we haven't even taken into account people working from home, Mm. you know. Yeah. And we definitely don't have time to get into that. That's why I said it's a completely different Pandora's box, isn't it? That's episode two of us. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'm conscious of time, Asha. I'm conscious it's a Saturday as well. And we have been talking for an hour and 10 minutes and 20 minutes. We did this shit, innit? We can talk, me and you. We did this last time. I could talk for England, me. So, and uh, mm. you know, when you get someone who, who's passionate about their pro- their project and their, their profession like you are, like... That's, that's just the perfect guest for me because I can just sit and talk and ask questions and throw opinions out there and see what the per, what the expert thinks and and go from there like and I just that's why I do this I love it that's good. what I good thank you for having me on it's been really good fun if, it's a good if, way to spend a Saturday morning oh good good yeah. that's nice to hear that's nice that's good feedback I like that um if if people wanted to do some work with you Asha can you just give us a quick run through kind of what what that looks like what you do and then how they get hold of you Yeah, sure. So obviously, off the back of my own experience in terms of what happened after I set up my private practice, I was really, really passionate. I I genuinely don't want people to go through what I went through. And genuinely, I don't want businesses to lose that qualified experienced member of staff. And so for me, uh, what I've done is I have created a couple of products. So there's presentations, there's workshops, but there's also a CPD um, accredited uh, training program that I've developed where people actually learn and understand the basics and the fundamentals about mental health. 
Because if you can start to understand what your stress cues are, if you can understand what it looks like when you're not coping, you have the ability then to start putting the things into place to start looking after yourself. And that's why it's about that proactive, that preventative taking care of ourselves. Because absolutely, as we've been saying all throughout, there is that organizational duty of care to look after us. And equally, we have to take, we have to take, we have to take, we have to take part. You know, we have to take some responsibility for doing that too as well. And so I run, like I said, workshops. Um, I do short presentations and I do uh, CPD accredited training. And then for those employees who, unfortunately, that presentation or that workshop isn't enough, they need that one-to-one support, then I also do one-to-one hypnotherapy for them as well. So I'm very much person-centered or business-centered. So usually I go in and, and say to them, look, what's going on? Um, and off the back of that, it's really interesting because sometimes I'll ask them, have you had more people signing off because they've been experiencing lots of muscle ache or IBS or they're talking about chest pains or they're talking about migraines or not being able to sleep because not everybody's going to go to the doctor and get themselves signed off. It can be those symptoms of high-functioning anxiety, generalized anxiety, you know, all of those kind of indicators that suggest our mental health is compromised and stretched. Um, and so if people can start saying, well, actually, I have been having more migraines and actually I have been waking up and yeah, I've been a right cow to my other half lately, you know, or I'm always screaming at the kids and I, I don't, I hate it when I do, you know, it's just those little cues that if you can learn what they look like, you're able then to start putting that work into place and really focusing on it. And like I said, from the beginning, everything I do is based on neuroscience. So I can explain to you how that works, why that works and why it's really important for all for us to be able to do that for ourselves. Awesome. And best way to get hold of you would be your website. Yeah, either through the website or um, just drop me an email. Um, do I need to send you my details or do I say them here? Because You can say them here and send them to me and I'll put them in the description for everyone. Cool. So my um, email address is asha at inspiredtochange.biz. Uh, still can't get used to saying it because it's weird. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so you can drop me an email or you can head over to the website, which is www.inspiredtochange.biz co.uk would it be yeah i'm guessing so okay i don't know because you don't have to type it do you normally you just copy edit and paste it and stick it in yeah well you just put inspired and then it comes up for you anyway uh yeah, yeah. That's true. um whatever it is we will put it in the description for everyone anyway so they, they can go and click on that but thank you very much ash for coming on no thank you thank you so much for your time it's been brilliant thank you james i really appreciate it no oh, thank you it's been a good chat actually. i really enjoyed it Okay, peeps, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Like I say, it was uh, a powerful and, and, and kind of harrowing conversation and harrowing story. And I'm, I'm really sorry that Asha had to go through that. But ultimately, she came out the other end. She'd learned from it. And she's now helping others do amazing work. So if you want to work with Asha, don't forget to check out her details in the description below as well. Um, hopefully, you can use this content um, in your journey, whether it be personal or professional, to either help yourself or help others. If you are struggling, please uh, reach out to somebody. Come and drop me a message. I'll happily chat with you. Um, completely free of charge just we'll just chat and whatever you need um and if you want some some 
other support, what we'll do is we'll find some um, some free of charge stuff like Mind and, and stuff like that, and we will put um, links in the description as well to a couple of um, helplines that can help you out. Before you leave us, don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance and the amazing work they're doing if you're looking for a human organisational performance, and don't forget to check out the Learning Organisational webinar as well don't forget to check out project Millennium. you get your first month free um, there's codes in the description there's codes on the website don't forget to check out rebranding safety there's loads of stuff we've been doing but this year we've just launched our consultancy service so if you're looking for some help there go check out that as well drop me a message or an email at james at rebrandingsafety.com i'll catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.